Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Well, good morning, everyone. How are we? Nice. All right. Two people. Fantastic. Um, Let's go ahead and dismiss our three to five-year-olds and six to seven-year-olds. You can head off to your class. And for everyone else, if you could, go ahead and grab your Bibles, open them up or turn them on, uh, whichever works for you. And uh, we're going to be in Luke 2, uh, Luke 2. So if you're new with us, my name is Dwayne, and I am one of the pastors here at the district. Um, and what we, one of the things we do is we love God's Word, we love preaching God's Word, and so we preach through God's Word. And so we uh, preach through books of the Bible, and right now we are in the book of Luke, and we are in our 10th week um, of probably about 104-ish weeks uh, that we will go through this book. So we are in uh, week 10, and uh, Luke 2, we're going to be looking at verses 39 through 52 uh, today. And so before we dive into that, uh, I just want to pray one more time over our uh, time in His Word and for the Spirit to do a work. Father, we thank You so much for Your goodness and Your grace to us. And we thank You for this opportunity to be able to open up Your Word and to be able to receive it uh, as the absolute truth that it is. And for it to uh, mold our hearts, shape our minds, renew us to be more like Your Son, Jesus. Uh, for Him to increase in us and for us to decrease. Uh, for us to be able to see Him truly for who He is and to be able to treasure Him above all things um, and in all things. And so we love You, Lord, and again, we thank You so much for this opportunity to proclaim the goodness of Your truth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. A.M. A.M. Amen. It is A.M., but amen. I've been up very early this morning. Uh, For the past few weeks, we've been looking at the birth of Jesus. And yes, you can preach the birth of Jesus outside of Christmas. And so that's what we've been looking at. Uh, But really, we've been kind of focusing around one word, which is incarnation. It is the coming of God as a man, Jesus Christ. And that's what we've been focusing on. And equally amazing to the doctrine of the Trinity is the doctrine of the incarnation. Because in the Trinity, we see uh, really three persons in one. And in the incarnation, we see how God can come as a man and still remain fully God, but also fully man. Uh, As J.I. Packer um, puts it, he says, Here are two mysteries for the price of one, the plurality of persons within the unity of God and the union of the Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. He goes on to say, Nothing in fiction is as fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. What Packer is saying there is there's nothing else in all of history, there's nothing else in all of creation or eternity that is like Jesus Christ, the God-man. And that's what we're looking at. That's what we're talking about today. Now, sure, in folklore and in Disney, you get kind of concepts of this. Uh, You get the idea of, of demigods, which are beings with partial or lesser divine status, Um, or the offspring of a god and a mortal, or a mortal raised to some type of divine rank. But they, again, these fictional characters are represented as as half of one and half of the other. Jesus is the only being in all of history who is said to be fully God and fully man. And our passage today reveals this to us. 
And so we're going to dive into it, Luke 2, and we're going to draw some conclusions out of this passage that reveal Jesus for who he is, but then also have um, some models and examples for us to, to apply to our lives. And so we're going to dive into it, Luke 2, starting with verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their hometown of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now that's actually what Josh finished with last week was was those those two verses. And what those two verses are doing are they're referencing kind of the hidden years between Jesus' infancy, which is what we've been looking at for the last few weeks, up until he turns the age of 12, all right? So those two verses are all we get between infancy to 12-year-old Jesus, all right? They're, they're, again, they're kind of considered the hidden years. It says he, just, he grew physically, mentally, spiritually, and the grace of God was on him. And we'll get to more of that here in a moment. Verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Anyone ever lost a child in here? Just me? Cool. All right, so... Bad parent award uh, for that one. So there, there was this one time, uh, Ezra, who's my oldest, about six, he'll be seven here in a couple of weeks. Uh, when he was about 18 months old, I was in our backyard uh, just hanging out with another friend, and Ezra was just doing his thing. And Ezra goes into the backsliding door, and as he goes in, usually he'll, he would go in, grab a toy, come back out, um, and, and it wouldn't take long for him to go in and come right back out. But several minutes had gone by, and he didn't come back out. And I was like, I'm just kind of wondering. I was like, what's he doing in there? And so I go in, and I'm kind of searching around the bottom of the house. And and I was like, well, okay, he's not in the living room. He's not in the music room. He's not in the dining room or the kitchen. He's not in the bathroom. So I'm like, okay, maybe he went upstairs, and he's in his room. So I go up there, and I start looking around. He's not in his room, none of the other bedrooms. And so then I start freaking out, which is what would be your natural cause, you know, so I then go downstairs, and as I'm going downstairs, I happen to just look over, and the front glass door was, like, unlatched, Um, and so at this moment, it's like, that anxiety starts welling up, okay, and so I go out the front door, and I yell back to my friend, I said, I need you to help me search for him, and so as we're walking out, the two things that come into my mind is there's a pond that's kind of out uh, behind our house over to the side, And then at the same time, there's this like little small playground that's at the very entrance to our neighborhood. And that's something that's familiar to him at this point, because we would walk down to that little playground and we would hang out there. So my mind is thinking he goes to familiarity. So as we're walking out, I'm yelling to my friend. I was like, I need you to go to the pond, which in hindsight, I probably should have went to the pond and sent him to the other side because that would have been more drastic. Uh, But anyways, I run to just the front of the entrance. And as I'm running to the entrance, I mean, I've got every terrible thought going through my mind. And then at the same time, I get at the front entrance, he's not at the playground. And so then I'm making my way back to the house. And I'm thinking, like, I've got to call Kelsey. What do I tell her? I've lost our son. Like, I have no idea where he's at. I don't know if someone picked him up. I have no idea. 
And then finally at that point, my friend calls me and says, I've got him, all right? Like, I've got him. I'm thinking, did you pull him out of the pond? Like, what's going on? And he was like, he was just literally on the side of the house, peeking through the fence where we were on the other side. And so, and, and so me, like, if I would have just looked over, I would have just seen him peeking through the fence. Now, he's probably, like, imagine Shepard, like, at this point, just peeking through the fence would have been Ezra. So, I was able to breathe, but I'm telling you, that is like one of the most torture, just experience, agonizing experiences that you can feel. And that was maybe only like four minutes, like five minutes tops that I was experiencing this moment, which here for um, Joseph and Mary, they've gone a day's journey. All right, they're gone for a day and then at the same time have to spend a day coming back And then it even says that it's after three days before they eventually find him. And so you can just imagine the sheer um, um, agonizing experience and just anxieties that they're feeling where they they lost Jesus. They lost God, all right? Like, how do you lose God? And, And that's exactly like if there was anyone who lost their salvation, they lost their salvation. They lost... They lost Jesus, but, but beyond that, we know that, that that actually can't happen. But anyways, it's beside the point. Let's pick it up and continue. As they get back to Jerusalem, as they're searching around, they then come and find Jesus. Verse 46, it says here, After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Now, a lot of times people will read that as like, how smart Alec of Jesus was that. But again, Jesus doesn't sin, so we can't read it like that. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, one thing to make notice here is, again, people are trying to figure out who who do you put fault on here? Do you put fault on the fact that Mary and Joseph are calling Jesus out and kind of rebuking Jesus by saying, why have you caused this to happen to us? Why have you put us in distress? Um, but, but honestly, like we, we know that Jesus doesn't sin. And so we know that Jesus has not done anything wrong here. Uh, if you're going to put blame on anybody, it's putting the blame on Mary and Joseph for assuming that Jesus was with the caravan, that he was with the group as they were walking. Maybe that Mary was assuming that he was with Joseph, or Joseph was assuming that he was with Mary, or they're just both assuming that he's with the group. It's a large group that was coming to the temple in this day and age. And so if you're going to put blame on anybody, it goes to them, which again is important to notice because again, there are there are sects of Christianity that believe that Mary was without sin. Well, here you can say she's not, okay? And not only that, but another thing that we're about to see is because they're 12-year-olds and they're coming to the Feast of Passover, they're coming to the temple in order to offer up, hey, here's our sins. We need them cleansed. We need sacrifices. We need this to work. And so if she was sinless or even Joseph was sinless, if either one of them was sinless, there's no need for them to come and partake of this ritual this event. And so again, if you're going to put blame, you're going to put sin, this is not cause for someone to say, see, Jesus sinned. 
All right? He disobeyed his parents. He didn't disobey his parents. Some theologians would actually say that 12 years old was the turning point of being a child to actually becoming an adult. And so at this point, Jesus technically would be removed from the authority of his parents as he moves into um, adulthood. But again, their adulthood is a little different than our adulthood. All right? our, our adulthood is not transitioning from 12 into 13. So if, if any of us have kids that are getting there, don't tell them that. All right? that that's not when they become adults. But for Jesus, um, that, that could be ruled out here in the sense that him moving into adulthood. But I think the greater thing to see here is that Jesus is actually not necessarily just dis, disobeying his parents, but he's actually showing where his greatest authority lands and where his greatest subjection and submission lands is that he's under the authority of his heavenly father versus the authority of his earthly parents. There's a greater authority in which he's under, which is why he says to them, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And here's where the son of man reveals himself to also be the son of God. We know he is the Son of Man because, again, Mary calls him Son in verse 48. But in verse 49, Jesus drops a truth bomb that no one has yet to claim. He's saying, God is my Father. John MacArthur comments that Jesus having to be present in his Father's house is not only the crux of the passage, but it also expresses the definitive reality of our Christian theology. In other words, this statement is the first time in Scripture that any individual claimed God as his personal father. All right? Now, the Jews viewed God as sort of a father of all things. And they also viewed him as sort of, the, sort of the father of Israel, their nation. But no one has had the audacity to claim God as personal father, as, as of, as begotten, as same in the sense. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here by saying that he is my father. He is my father. It's personal. It's intimate. And that's something that's never happened before. The boy Jesus is revealing two realities for us. He's revealing that Jesus is God, and he's also revealing that Jesus is a man. And so one question that has been asked is, can he be fully God and fully man at the same time? That's a question that's been going on for 2,000 years now. Is, is he, does he remain in his full deity while at the same time becoming fully what we are as well? And to break it down for us, sometimes people will take passages like Philippians 2, which talks about Jesus emptying himself to become like us as if he's laying aside his deity in order to become fully man. And the reality is that Jesus is is just not like you and me in that sense. He does remain fully God. And the reason why we believe that He remains fully God with every attribute that God possesses is because of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus is not merely someone who is a lot like God or someone who has a very close walk with God, but rather is God Himself. We see this in Titus 2.13 that says that as Christians, we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our glory or of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Beyond that, upon seeing the resurrected Christ, Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. He's looking at Jesus and he's saying, this is my God in John 20.28. 20, 
Likewise, the book of Hebrews gives us God the Father's direct testimony about Christ. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. So the Father, looking at Jesus, referring to the Son, calls him God. Your throne is forever and ever. And the Gospel of John calls Jesus the only begotten God in John 1.18. Another way the Bible teaches that Jesus is God is by showing that He is all of the attributes of God. The Bible says that He knows everything. We see that in Matthew 16.21, Luke 11.17, John 4.29. The Bible says that Jesus is everywhere. We see that in Matthew 18.20, Matthew 28.20, Acts 18.10. The Bible says that Jesus has all power. We see that in Matthew 8, 26-27 and John eleven thirty eight 38-44. We see that uh, Jesus depends on nothing um, outside of Himself for life. He is life. He is God in that respect. We see that in John 1, 4, John 14, 6, John 8, 58. We see that Jesus rules over everything. We see that in Matthew 28, 18, Revelation 1, 5 and Revelation 19, 16. We see that Jesus never began to exist and never will cease to exist. We see that in John 1.1 and John 8.58. We also see that Jesus is our creator. We see that in Colossians 1.16. In other words, everything that God is, Jesus is. Jesus is. For Jesus is God. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's what we believe. We believe that Jesus Christ, the man, is fully God. We also believe, or it should be obvious, that if Jesus is God, then He has always been God, for God is eternal. There's, there was never a time when He became God, because God is eternal. There are other religions that believe that Jesus was a created being of the Father, and that's when He also kind of had some type of divine attributes attached to Him. Uh, religions like Jehovah's Witness believe that. Um, but again, Jesus was not a first and created being, but has always been in eternity as God. However, Jesus has not always been a man. He's always been God, but he's not always been a man. The fantastic miracle is that this eternal God became a man through the incarnation approximately 2,000 years ago. That's what we've been walking through over the past few weeks, and it is a fantastic miracle. God the Son becoming man. But what exactly do we mean when we say that the Son of God became the Son of Man? Because the Son of Man is a term that Jesus ascribes to himself. It's a term that he referenced as kind of a title, if you will, that he took on as he's starting to explain himself to uh, the people around him in, in first century. The Apostle John teaches how denying that Jesus is man is to not be like Christ, but rather to actually be anti-Christ. So to say that Jesus isn't fully man is to literally have uh, what the Bible refers to as the spirit of the anti-Christ. We see this in 1 John 4, 2-3, which says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. What he's essentially saying there is to understand that God became a man and lived as a man only is able to be confessed if it's from God himself. So, so everyone else who doesn't confess that is essentially confessing what it goes on to say. 
Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is, um, is who he says he is, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. This is the spirit of not Christ. Jesus, a human in flesh, is displayed in the fact, again, that he was born as a baby from a human mother, Luke 2, 7 and Galatians 4, 4. That he became weary in John 4, 6. That he became thirsty in John 19, uh, 28. That he became hungry in Matthew 4, 2. And that he experienced the full range of human emotions such as marvel in Matthew 8.10 and sorrow in John 11.35. And as we'll see today, that he also grew. That he grew in wisdom, that he grew in stature, that he grew in favor with God and man, and that he lived on earth just as we do. There are things Jesus did as a man that have never been experienced by God in eternity. God has never hungered. He doesn't need to. God has never thirst. He doesn't need to. God has never grown weary like Jesus the man did. So there are attributes about Jesus the man that are not the same as the attributes of Jesus as God. And that allows us to kind of draw into the conclusion that there are two natures in one person. There is the nature of God fully and there is also the nature of man fully. Jesus as a man has come to fulfill some things for us. And so this is the question that we have to ask or answer with our passage today is, why was it important for Jesus to become man? Why was it important for him to become man? And why will he also be a man forever? All right, like so when he died and resurrected, he didn't go back into the same spirit that he was before he became a man, but rather he actually remains a man forever. The book of Hebrews says it was so that Christ could be an adequate Savior who has all that we need. It says this in Hebrews 2.17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. All right, Big word, what is propitiation? It is the action of appeasing a holy God. In layman's terms, to appease God, sin must be dealt with. Sin must be dealt with and righteousness must be dealt out. So Jesus comes to make propitiation. He comes to take our sins away from us and become our sins. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. In order to then deal out His righteousness. So that we might become his righteousness. This is propitiation. It's a substitution. It's a great exchange. It's I take from you what you are in order for you to become what I am. Jesus as a man has come to fulfill all of the righteous requirements of obedience to the law on our behalf. That's why he had to come in the form of a baby. Not a grown full adult like Adam and Eve were when they were created. A lot of people ask, why didn't he just come as a full adult and then go and die on the cross? Because then he would not have fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law that he then distributes to us so that we can be considered holy in God's sight. So he comes in the form of a baby in order to be circumcised on the eighth day, in order to be presented in the temple, as Jesus shared with us last week, as Josh shared with us last week. Hey, Joshua, Yeshua, you know, they get... Anyways, um, as he shared with us last week, he, he walks through each of the requirements of the law in order to be considered the standard of righteousness. 
And if that standard of righteousness is what's considered holy, that's what we need in order to be in presence and in relationship with the holy God. So Jesus comes in the form of a man to then fulfill all of the righteous requirements of the law, while at the same time, Jesus as a man has come to absorb all of the unrighteousness of disobedience to the law on our behalf so that what we experience is the great exchange. We experience the great exchange. This was only going to happen through a man who was God. But not a man first, rather God first, and out of heaven comes to earth as a man. We actually see this prophesied and then fulfilled out of Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Daniel says this in a vision. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Again, one like a son of man. One in every respect, a man just like the rest of us. One like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Everything that we talked about last week, kind of that baby dedication of Jesus. He was presented to the Ancient of Days before him to fulfill all things in the law. And to him was given this one like a son of man, presented to the Ancient of Days, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This one like a son of man, fully God and possesses all dominion and all authority over all peoples and nations and tribes and tongues. All kingdoms. And what we see in today's text is the fulfillment of one like a son of man coming to the Ancient of Days to be in His presence. To be in His presence. We get to see Jesus grow as a son of man. We also get to see Jesus affirm Himself as the Son of God. Two things that provide us both a model and a hope for our faith to rest on. And so even though Jesus is letting us in on the news that not only is He fully man, but He is in fact eternally fully God, Jesus is also, through His humanity, giving us an example, and He's giving us a model here on what life as a human should look like for one to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. To sum up that statement, Jesus matured spiritually, physically, mentally, and socially. That's exactly what he did. He matured spiritually, physically, and socially from a baby to a boy, and then from a boy to a man. And that means if it was necessary for Jesus to mature as a man, physically, mentally, spiritually, socially, how much more is it necessary for us to grow and to mature spiritually, physically, mentally, socially, in the work of Jesus, in the identity of Christ, to be godly, to be like Him. And so three applications here for us this morning. First, spiritual growth takes time. We must actively engage in the process. It takes time, all right? It, it was not, I mean, Jesus is fully God, and it wasn't automatic for Him. Right? From, from, a, from infancy to 12 years old, He grew. He grew. All right? And even when He's 12 and we find Him in the temple, He's not just showing up fully aware of everything that's going on. He's asking questions. 
And he's seeking answers. And some people would say, well, why couldn't he just ask himself? He's God. Well, it didn't work that way, all right? God reveals to man Jesus as is necessary for his age and his development when it comes to his calling, his calling on his life. And another thing is not only do we see Jesus growing here, do we see Jesus seeking out questions and asking questions, we also see that he is full of wisdom beyond his years because he's also providing answers to them on, on discussions and dialogues that they're, happening, that they're having. And so with that, one thing is, is that we need to also have dialogue and discussions with our 12-year-olds, our 10-year-olds, our eight-year-old. Many of you know the story of my salvation was a 10-year-old sharing the gospel with me when I was 12 years old. And that 10-year-old being able to articulate the gospel in such a way that it gripped my heart and I met Jesus and, and I got saved. And so we don't need to just kind of brush over our children in the sense that they can't understand or that they uh, can't ask good questions or that they're just annoying uh, little wretched people that they are. No, like it's they are a part of the family, that they are also in their journey engaged in the process, that they are growing, that they're going to have questions that they're going to ask. That they're going to work out this. I mean, I know one of my kids this week was asking, um, he's like, well, Jesus is God, but God the Father is God, but the, Jesus is not his Father, so how does that work out? I'm like, okay, this is, this is Trinitarian language here. Let's, let's try to dive in. Well, there's also Holy Spirit. Who's the Holy Spirit? What is this? And so it, it was too much for, well, it wasn't too much for my pay grade. That is my pay grade. Um, but... <laughs> I was working it out, working it out with them. Fear and trembling, okay? But they have questions, and we are to give answers and allow them to be able to understand just as Jesus was doing here as a 12-year-old boy. One question that I have with that is, what are we doing to grow in the things of God? Are we engaging in the process as well? Because it is a process. Are we following the motto and example of Jesus here as he is seeking out truth? I mean, 12-year-old boys could be doing a lot of other things in the city with no parents, right? But yet he is seeking out, where can I go to find more truth? Where can I go to get more of God's word? Where can I go to find more answers? That's what I want. Not only that, do we see him actually entering into the fullness of his uh, deity where he's like, I've got to be with my father. I've got to be with my father. And he goes to be with his father's presence in that moment. Are we doing that? I think one of the tragedies of modern Christianity is this, that we are more afraid of holiness than we are sinfulness. We're more afraid of holiness than we are sinfulness. There, this is a process that we're engaging in to become holier, to grow spiritually. And what I mean by that is we can tolerate sin, but as soon as we start talking about holiness, we kind of get all bent out of shape. Why? Because... We don't like being told when we are wrong and we need to improve. We don't like being told we're wrong and need to improve. We'd rather hear that we're just crushing it in life and that we don't need to work on anything. What a lie that is from the enemy. The greatest thing you can do as a friend is tell someone they need to grow in Christ. That's the greatest thing you can do as a friend, is tell someone they need to grow in Christ. And, and also, 
identify that, that you're along that journey as well. I want to grow in Christ together. Together. There is a way to do that that is in a loving rebuke rather than an unloving judgment, right? And we'll get to that here in a minute. But the big idea is it's a process. Do you have, a, do you have regular time where you invest in your spiritual growth with God's word and prayer like Jesus is doing here? Are you reading solid books that instruct you in the faith? Do you engage in spiritual discussions with other like-minded believers? Do you, do you have spiritual disciplines that serve you to be more like Jesus? Second, spiritual growth involves an active interest in the Word of God. It involves an active interest in the Word of God. The Word of God is the fuel that drives our growth, our maturity. If, if, if Jesus is fully the, the visible representation of the invisible God, the written Word of God is the physical, tangible representation of who Jesus Christ is. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word is the Word of God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. This is what reveals to us everything that we need to know about the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when people say, I want to grow in Christ, I want to grow in my relationship with the Lord, and it's void of the Word of God, guess what's not going to happen? You're not going to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ if it's void of the Word of God. Too often in our modern Christianity is we want to be ethereal in how we feel about Jesus and how we feel about our maturity and our spirituality. And we kind of come up with conceptualism. This is what we believe Christianity should be. This is what we believe or this is how we feel Christianity should be. And the reality is it's not found anywhere in the Bible, but rather we're allowing the social construct or the society around us to mold and shape our Christianity. And it's not Christian. It's just not Christian. What is Christian is what God says is. And what God says is, is His Word. And that's why we, as the district, what we're going to do is we're going to revolve everything around the Word of God. Community groups are going to be sermon-based discussions around the Word of God. Bible studies are going to study the Bible, the Word of God. Equip classes are going to equip you from the principles that come out of the Word of God in order to how to counsel one another and how to evangelize like the Word of God does. How to uh, disciple one another like we've seen discipled in the Word of God. How to grow in the theology, which is the study of God. How do we know who God is? We go to His Word. We study His Word. It's all going to be based around the Word of God. And so spiritual growth involves an active interest in the Word of God. And lastly, spiritual growth should be focused in two directions. Toward God and toward others. Jesus grew in favor with God and men. Favor with God and men. Verse 52. These directions reflect the great commandment to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It reflects those. It sums up uh, the Ten Commandments. Honestly, it sums up the whole law. All right, The whole law of the Old Testament can be summed up in love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's God's way in, 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 in instructing the people on how to do those things. And because we fell short in doing that, He sent Jesus to do that. And therefore, because Jesus fully did that, 
He found favor with God and men because he was loving God 100% as a man, loving him with all his heart, all his soul, all his might. And at the same time, he is loving his neighbor as himself. He is loving his neighbor as himself. Now, with that, if the Great Commission... Well, let me say this, because I think this is one of our issues with today. The Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, that's kind of the mission of the church. That's what we hang our hat on. But the Great Commission, void of the Great Commandment, hinders the Great Commission. You can't go and make disciples if the people going and making disciples are not loving God and loving others. It just doesn't work that way. That's why they're both oftentimes thrown in as the two greats. You've got to have the great commandment with the great commission. If you have the great commandment without the great commission, then you're not actually understanding a relationship with God because He's always going to send you on mission. And at the same time, if you're only doing the great commission without the great commandment, then you're working for God but not enjoying Him. And, and, and because you're not enjoying Him, you're also not going to probably express the attributes of God that are loving and joyful and patient and kind and good and gentle. You're not going to, to express the fruit of the Holy Spirit when you're not in relationship and loving, abiding in Jesus Himself. So we need these two. To be on mission, to be involved with the great commandment, loving our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. If the great commission is a goal, we have to confront the obstacles that keep people from hearing the gospel. And I think, again, one of those obstacles right now is that the American church does not love its neighbor. We don't need to recreate church or repackage the church experience in order to entertain unbelievers or to even excuse their sin. I think that's what the church is trying to do in America is tolerate sin. We, we, we love the sinner, hate the sin. That's not God's language. When you look in the Psalms, He, he abhors sinners. The Bible refers to sinners as enemies of God. But it's in His mercy and His grace that He pursues enemies in order to redeem them out and to save them and to forgive them. It says it like this in 1 John 4, 19-21. We love, we, we love first, or we love because He first loved us. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Same language there of like Jesus saying in the temple, I must be with my Father because of the love that they have between one another. If you say you love God, it must also reflect love for brother, love for neighbor. 
Now, it says we love because he first loved us. How did God love us? 1 John 4, 10 through 11. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's that word again. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God so loved us, how did he, how did he love us? Because he sent Jesus, incarnation, to become a man and to do what? As Romans 3, 23 and 25 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the first thing that we proclaim. Like, great commission, you, you want to go out and make disciples? It's going out to sinners and saying, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter what you're trying to do. If you're trying to do it to earn favor with God, it's not going to work out. We've all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. And if you think whatever your view is on how to get to God is going to eventually arrive, and let's say you do and you have the perfect day and you, you did not sin, guess what? There's still a history of collateral damage of sin that's trailing behind you that you're still going to be held accountable for. So we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified only by His grace as a gift. As a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the God-man, whom God put forward as a propitiation, there's our word again, as a substitution by His what? Does anyone know? Blood. By His blood. And that's what kind of draws us into what he did in order to love us was that he shed his blood to be received by faith. Belief in him. Trusting in him. Saying you are who you say you are. You are the son of man and the son of God. And that you came to live on my behalf because I could not do it perfectly. And that because I couldn't do it perfectly, Romans 6.23 says that I should die for that. And because I should die for that, you don't kill me. Instead, you killed your son, Jesus. You sent him in my place. And he died on the cross. And therefore, he took and absorbed my sin, my death, and then gave me his righteousness. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 puts it this way. For as by a man came death. That's Adam. For by a man came death by a man again Jesus has come also the resurrection of the dead no longer dead in your sins and your trespasses but raised to walk in a newness of life for as in Adam all die all die you you have no chance dead just by being born as in Adam all die so also in Christ the second Adam, the better Adam, all shall be made alive. All shall be made alive. One of the ways that we remember God's love to us is by remembering the Son's sacrifice at the cross. He came to fulfill everything through growing and maturing spiritually, mentally, socially, physically. He earned everything that was necessary to be considered righteous from birth to starting ministry around the age of 30. 
All of that was earned for you. Oftentimes people just focus on literally the death of Jesus Christ. That's what saves you of your sins. Sure, it does. But at the same time, what is also necessary was the fact that he was born and lived perfectly for 30 years because you couldn't. And so he is what we call imputed righteousness. It's given to you. It's literally deposited to your account. So when you become a believer, it's that great exchange. For he who knew no sin became sin. He took your sin to give you his righteousness. So that we might become the righteousness in Christ. Imputed righteousness. Great exchange. Jesus coming to be a man, living the perfect life, appeasing the Father in all things. The Father to look down on Him and say, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased in all things. Perfect. Righteous. Everything that we're longing for. The reason why we ache is because we're longing for perfection. We're realizing that we're not. All right, We're realizing this, this last week I went to the Colts training camp um, and there was a 40-yard dash uh, challenge and I was like, ooh, I see a little record board over there, all right, 4.97. I was like, back in the day, I could do that. I was like, so I'm going to go do it. I got to about the 30-yard mark and realized that I'm not as young as I used to be and that my legs were not going as fast as I thought they were and I just bit the dust. I literally just fell, scraped up knees and all. Perfection is so far from us at this point. So far from us. I'm just daily reminded of my imperfections. We're daily reminded of our groaning and our aches. It's not even us. Even creations, as Romans 8 says, is groaning for the day of God to come and restore all things. Nothing is perfect except for Jesus Christ. The man who came and lived and did everything. Every thought, every word, every deed, every action. Perfect, holy, righteous. And what he does at the cross, at that moment, the crux of, of, of all of history, is he becomes every imperfection that you are in order to give you every perfection that he is. And it's a gift. It's a gift by faith and grace in him. And so as we come to our time of communion, this is what we draw our attention to every single week, to this moment of what Jesus Christ has done for us in order to make this happen. That this was on his mind from the beginning. i got to be in my father's house. And eventually, that father's house is going to pour out his wrath on me. And I am laying my life down for it. I am the lamb who is going to come and be slaughtered for the removal of your sins. I mean, Jesus, as we've been looking at, his, his cousin, John the Baptist, about six months older than him. That's the first thing John the Baptist sees in Jesus' ministry. When Jesus is walking down the road, John the Baptist, and we'll see this in a couple weeks, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. That's everything we needed to know. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. You want your sins taken away? 
You want your imperfections removed? It's by faith in Jesus. Not your works. Not your effort. Not your 401ks. Not your good tidings and great joys and whatnot. It's, it's literally, it's just faith in Jesus Christ. He did everything we needed. And we worship him for it. We worship him. So I want you to go ahead and stand. And as you stand, I want you to head back. If you don't have the elements, you can go back and grab them on the table. For those who understand this reality, this is what we invite you into, is to partake and celebrate with us via communion. This spiritual meal that nourishes our souls, that reminds us, that's the purpose of it, to just remind us of this sacrifice that Jesus made, that that we can't do anything without Him and without what He has done for us. We remember that. We worship him through this process, through this meal. The Apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it, and He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I want you just to imagine, again, your past, your present, your future, your sins, you commit all those imperfections were placed on Jesus' body and it was broken. They're paid for. It was broken. So let's partake of the wafer and remember his body being broken. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. I want you to do this as often as you drink it. I want you to do it in remembrance of me. Remember that my blood is what forgives your sins. It's it's my payment to the Father so that your slate is wiped clean and that His wrath towards you has been dealt with and grace has then been dealt out. Righteousness has been dealt out. Let's remember that as we now drink of the cup. His blood being shed for us. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. Let's continue to proclaim all that Jesus has done for us as we continue on in worship. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at